Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. My name is Robert Newberry, and I have the privilege of getting to be on staff with our young adult ministry, Renovate. Um, and Renovate Live is this Wednesday. Um, and so if you've never been or if you have been, we'd love to come have you out. Like Ben said, we are going through a series on doubts and really wrestling through uh, what that looks like in our life and how God answers those doubts. And so we'd love for you to come check it out. And uh, for no other reason, then you get free dinner. Um, but if you want community and hear, hear a little bit about Jesus as well, man, we'd love to have you. Um, but yeah, uh, I love being here. I love getting to come back to the college ministry because uh, this is where I grew up, like Ben said. Uh, came in here, uh, 18, 19 year old kid, and left just a little bit less dumb and a little bit looking more like Jesus. Um, but it was a really sweet time, and I loved it. Uh, we had our service over there in the Aardvark, the bar uh, right next door. And man, it was a fun time. It was great. Uh, you had people showing up for a co college worship service, as well as those people getting their credit card or whatever they left at the bar last night. So it was a fun little dynamic um, of both. It was great. Um, but yeah, just thinking back on that time, college is sweet. Like y'all have an awesome opportunity and just a time in front of you. It's really fun. You get so much free time with your friends. Um, I know some of y'all are going on the Belize trip. Uh, this next week, and that is that was one of my favorite memories of college, hands down. So if you aren't going this year, you should definitely go next year because um, it'll change your life, and it's a ton of fun. But I just got to thinking about college, you know, like getting to come back here, getting to think about, okay, what was it like, and just remembering all the fun times I had with my friends. Um, and do you ever have that moment where you're just like walking down memory lane, minding your own business, not doing anything wrong, and then all of a sudden, like one of your memories just comes out and attacks you? And what I mean by that is you have done something so awkward or so uncomfortable that you physically get affected even here in the day and now, just thinking back on that moment. Well, I did. Um, yeah, I was 19 years old, uh, so freshman or sophomore, and was involved in an on-campus ministry called Ignite. It was uh, this once-a-week worship service where you got to come out anywhere on TCU. We'd hold it in the rec, the blue, on the DJ Kelly lawn, and just have a worship service come out, uh, sing some songs, and the whole Christian community at TCU got together. And it was really fun. It was really sweet. I got involved, got started on the setup team, so tear down crew people, wherever you're at, to flip this room. You have my heart. I love you. This cannot happen without you. Y'all are awesome. Um, and that's where I started, and it was just a really sweet time getting to set up, show up early, set up chairs, speakers, all that type of stuff. Um, and before our first one of the year, we're getting really excited. Like, we've gone out, spread flyers, all that. It's been great. And people are showing up, and it's getting crazy packed. Like, we had about, like, 800 people uh, show up to the rec center at the time. And so one of the dudes who was a part of our setup crew was like, hey, you know what we should do? Like, he got us all together. And he was like, we should do, like, leapfrog, except we're standing up and just jump over each other's shoulders. And I'm, like, looking around, and I'm like, that's a really weird way to welcome people to worship service. But sure, all right, I don't care. Um, and so, like, we do it. All of us are about the same height, so it's like, okay, cool, we can kind of do this. And so, sure enough, it, like, goes. Everyone's hopping, and when it gets to my turn, I start going, make it through the first three guys, and then on the last one, uh, the guy out in front 
apparently one of his friends had like seen him from across the room and came up and gave him this really aggressive bear hug and like slid him uh, probably about a foot to the left, which isn't really that much. But um, when someone has left their feet, I don't know if you know this, but they can't change their direction once they are in the air. And so when I was in the air and he moved, I could know I was at the mercy of whatever situation was about to go down. And sure enough, clipped his head and I fell flat on my back in front of 800 people. And I wanted to disappear. I wanted to be invisible. I wanted to do anything but be there. And still, to this day, I just get that like, ugh, feeling of like, I want to disappear. It's like that middle school worst fear of you draw attention to yourself in the worst way. Because any middle schooler thinks like, hey, just don't do anything to draw attention to yourself ever. And I did that in the most fantastically awful way. And it was great. Um, but sure enough, life moved on, and it wasn't that bad. And my friends gave me a fun ribbon for it every now and then. But, you know, it wasn't too bad. Uh, I fell on my back. It was great. Um, but those situations happen in life where we have that moment, we're embarrassed, we feel exposed, and we're like, ah, I want to get out of here. Um, and some of them you can laugh off. Some of them are like, oh, okay, cool, yeah, that was an accident, it was a mistake. Or some of them kind of hit on a little bit, a little bit of a nerve, where it kind of hits a little bit closer to home. Whether you let a friend down, let a parent down, you get caught in a lie, or you, I don't know, like you just make a mistake. You feel exposed. And you feel like you want to do anything you can to get out of it. You're kind of just at the mercy of the situation. Those moments are real, and they make us search for something tangible, something real to hold on to, because in the back of our mind, we're wondering what other people are thinking about us. We're wondering, am I being judged? Am I being put down? Am I being cast aside as like the awkward kid or the one who made that mistake? When we really think about it, we're kind of left with the question of like, oh man, is this people seeing me at my worst? And are they still going to love me? Am I still going to be accepted? Or maybe no one's ever seen you at your worst. Maybe you've been able to hide it, or maybe you just have some skeletons in your past that you never brought up. And you have that question of, if someone ever knew, what would that look like? What would my friends think of me? That's a question that all of us have because we all are dealing with mistakes from our past. And so what I'm excited to do today is look at a story where that happens for women in the Bible. And we're going to get to see how Jesus interacts with her and how he meets her in that moment, in her worst moment, and how he walks her through that. So if you have your Bibles with me, open up to John 8, John chapter 8. And uh, I'll give you some time to flip there. Okay, so picking up in uh, the book of John, this is where Jesus has started his public ministry. Jesus is uh, active, out serving, out doing miracles, out proclaiming his kingdom. The new kingdom has come. And so at this point, he is going out, living, being among the people, preaching, teaching. And also alongside that, uh, you have the Pharisees and others who are trying to discredit his teaching and those who are trying to trip him up and get anything they can, any kind of dirt on him, so that they can discredit him, they can devalue his words, and they can go back to their old way of living. And so we have one of those interactions between the Pharisees and Jesus in this moment, but it's played out with some pretty weighty stakes for a woman 
Um, read with me in the text and we'll see what I'm talking about. It says, early in the morning, he, being Jesus, came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Stop right there for a second. Just take a moment to think about what that would have looked like for this woman in that moment. I mean, we talk about an uncomfortable, exposed, raw moment caught in the act of adultery and then now she is brought before the religious elite to be discussed as a talking point as a debate between their ministry but with real life ramifications for her and she's just a passenger so if you want to talk about raw exposed moments this was the pinnacle read on with me and it said this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no further. Man, I just want to read verses 10 and 11 again. It says, Jesus stood up and he said to her in the midst of her rawest moment, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. I couldn't imagine what it would have been like to be her in that moment. To be exposed in that way against your will and then to be used as a teaching point. Um, When I'm caught, when I feel like I am drawn out, laid bare, caught in a lie or something, my first inclination is to want to hide, is to want to run, want to try and explain it away, excuse it, like, oh, I was just late, it slipped, my mistake, or oh, I made a wrong guess on how much time it would take, sorry I'm late. Um, or at the very least, just try and like cast attention on something else. Just draw attention away from it. Just try and push anything, anything to get the spotlight off me. But the woman in this story, she didn't have that opportunity. She didn't have an opportunity even to speak for herself. She is purely at the mercy of the Pharisees and Jesus in this discussion. And she is sad as her worst moment is debated, critiqued, used as a talking point in between here. And I don't have a context for what that would look like in today's society, in today's culture. I think the closest thing uh, that I can think of is if right now we were in this room and yours or my worst sins started just playing as a highlight reel on this TV. Like, imagine how uncomfortable that would be. Like, the worst moments that you had, even when you were like, five, six years old, all the way up until now. Just a laundry list, a highlight reel of all of your worst moments as a human. Just that feeling of being laid bare and drawn out there. Oh man, I can't imagine what she must have felt like in that moment. 
But I think it's in those moments where we look to what is most stable and what is most secure in our life because we don't have anywhere else to turn. I can imagine if I was her, I would want someone, a friendly face, someone to lean on, to look at and be like, is this really happening? And I think, and I know that that person that we get to turn to if we were in Christ is Jesus. And so let's look at how he responds in this story and, how, and three things that we can take from how he handles the situation to inform us for how he sees us in our worst and then how we get to be a friend to others in their worst moments. So the first point, the first thing uh, that Jesus does is not even with the woman. It's that he handles the, accu- the accuser. Jesus handles the accuser. Read with me in verses three through five. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? The Pharisees came to Jesus and wanted to know how to deal with the woman. She was a problem to to them. They wanted to know what was the punishment What was the price that she was going to have to pay? What do we carry out? But what Jesus does in this moment is he doesn't just look at face value and he doesn't just answer their question and go, yeah, sure, she was caught in adultery. She was. And that would have been a sufficient answer. But because Jesus is coming to establish a new kingdom, he answers in a different way. He turns the attention back onto them. And what he does is in verse seven, he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone essentially saying, if any of you have perfectly fulfilled the law that you just quoted and are using to condemn this woman, if you have held up to that standard, sure, condemn her. But if not, are you no better? Have you not struggled as well? Because what he's doing in this moment is using their desire to want to judge this woman to persecute this woman and basically holding up a mirror to them and saying do you are you without sin have you not struggled in your own ways sure maybe it looks different than her but have you not struggled in your own ways and what he's doing is pointing them to their own brokenness as well but a real quick point what he is not doing is saying that no one can be called out Um, because there's this trend that we have in christian culture now where whenever someone calls us out, we get defensive and we say, well, who are you to judge? Or what about your sin? I've seen you do this. And so quick, we throw it back in the person's face and say like, oh, well, you have sin too, so you can't talk to me. That's not what Jesus is doing here. That calling a brother out, pushing them towards Jesus is a really godly thing that we need in our lives because we sin and we fall short. So we need people in our life who are pointing us back to Jesus daily. But what Jesus is doing here is pointing the Pharisees to humility. He's pointing them to say, you are not perfect. And you are holding this woman to a perfect standard. And they are pushing for judgment. They are pushing for a final judgment. But Jesus is doing something different. So he handles the accusation. He doesn't just respond on face value. He doesn't just answer the question and move on and be like, yes, you're right, move on. He's pointing the Pharisees back to humility as well. So that's his first point. Second, the second point that he has is Jesus meets us where we are. Now we get to the part with the woman. Look back at the story with me. Specifically where it picks up in verse seven. 
And they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to him, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. This is a sweet moment with Jesus. Don't miss what he's doing here. The first thing that he does is he waits until he's alone with her, one-on-one. Everyone else has gone away. He has pointed them back to their own sin, saying, take a hard look at yourself first. And then he waits until he's one-on-one with her. And in the midst of the hardest day that she's probably ever experienced, probably from the moment that she woke up until now, she has faced the fear of, am I going to be stoned? Am I going to lose my life here? Because the Pharisees were quoting Deuteronomy 22, 22. And that was within the law to stone her. And what Jesus does in this moment is he talks to her and he asks her. And he essentially says, is your worst fear about to come true? He says, have they condemned you? Have you are you going to face that punishment? And she says, no. Because she sees that no one is left before her except him. And the coolest thing about this is Jesus is the one who holds all the power in this situation. He has every right to throw that first stone. He has lived a sinless life. He has lived a blameless, perfect life. He has kept the law perfectly. And by his own standard, then he could, in his right, throw that stone. He could bring the condemnation that she so feared. But instead, our God comes with grace. He says, neither do I condemn you. Else. He says, I'm not condemning you. He meets her in the biggest fear that she has, the weakest moment, the most vulnerable experience that she could possibly have. He says, I don't condemn you. And in this moment, she knows two things. She knows that the darkest parts of her are known. She's been caught in it. She's been exposed in front of everyone. She can't hide that. It's clear. The whole town knows. And she knows that she's not facing condemnation. She knows that the one person that everyone else turned to doesn't condemn her and loves her instead. Our Jesus meets her, meets her in this darkest moment, meets her when she fears judgment, fears condemnation, and instead he gives her hope. Gives her hope that there will be a new day, that she can move on and she can not be defined by this one moment won't be the last thing that she does. And again, he's going counter to what society had expected at this moment. He's operating in a different way that wasn't expected because Jesus is doing something. He's establishing a new kingdom and we'll see it play out. So the second thing is he meets us where we are. And the third thing is he calls us to something better. The last part of this verse, after he says, neither do I condemn you, is so important. He says, go and sin no more. Jesus did not go through all of that with this woman. to just simply say like, okay, cool. Go back to however you were living. Like, do whatever you want in your life. Like, it's fine. Go back to it. It's okay. He knows that it's been robbing her of life. 
He knows that it's been weighing on her, and he knows that in this most vulnerable, most raw moment, she feels caught out, she feels exposed, and it's because her sin is being brought into the light. And so he says, I want better for you. Go and sin no more. Because he doesn't want to deal with that. He doesn't want to go, go through all that and walk you through all that just for you to stay in brokenness. He doesn't want this woman to stay in brokenness. He says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more because there's a call to live a better way and that better way is with him. But how can you say that? What right does Jesus have to go against, not go against the law and establish a new standard, establish a new covenant? The right that he has is that he knows what he's about to go do. He knows in just a short time he's gonna face persecution and he's gonna be betrayed and he's gonna be given over to be tortured and punished. But it's not simply because he was betrayed. He's going there for a purpose. Jesus is going to pay the punishment for this woman. He's going up on that cross to pay the price to be able to not condemn her. He bought the right to be gracious to her because he lived a perfect life and then on that cross, he paid the penalty for her sin. So he now has the right to say, I don't condemn you because I have paid for this. That's what he says to you and me because our God is so good that he didn't just live a perfect life to say, this is how it's done. No, he lived a perfect life to say, I have fulfilled the law, I have paid the standard, and I am giving it now to you because I love you. That is what it means for us to be in Christ is that we know and trust in our God as a savior to say, he loved me and he gave himself up for me so that I may know peace and I may know him because we are separated from him by a chasm that we could never cross. Our sin separated us from God and that accusation, whatever it was on your life, whatever it was on my life, it was still there until he went to that cross and he died for our sins and he rose again. And if you're in Christ, that is the sweetest truth that we get to hold on to. Is that our God bought the right to be gracious, to be compassionate, to be, compa- to be kind to us and to love us and to give us hope. So that is where he meets us. And if you aren't in Christ, man, I'm so glad you're here. I don't know what has kept you from Christ. I don't know if you went to church and got hurt and experienced some really just gross things at the church. And if that's the case, I'm sorry. But that's not Jesus. That's not who he is. This is who Jesus is in this story. The one who sees you at your very worst and says, I love you. I want you in my family. And I'm gonna die and I'm gonna pay the price so that you can know me. And it's with that right, that is the reason that Jesus can then come and say, go and sin no more. Come and follow me, live a life with me because he died so that you could have a better way. He died so that we wouldn't have to be defined by our brokenness. We wouldn't have to be stuck in this pattern of continually being accused and feeling ashamed of our sin and feeling like we weren't loved because he once and for all said, you are loved by me and I'm willing to die for it. That is who our God is. And so this new life that he calls us into is one with him. 2 Corinthians 5 puts it in a really good way. Um, If you're ever wanting to know what it looks like to walk with Jesus, I highly encourage you to spend some time in 2 Corinthians 5. But 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ, that is you and that is me. Whatever your sin was, whatever that thing that popped up in the back of your mind, whatever would have been played on your screen of your worst moments, it's passed away, it's dead. It has been bought and paid for by the God of the universe. And the new has come, a new life in Christ. Another way to put it is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And to paraphrase that for you, uh, just to kind of make it a little personal, it says, for our sake, for my sake, for the woman's sake, God made Jesus to be sin, to be the adultery, to be whatever your sin is, whether it's lust, drinking, pornography, anger, whatever it is, made him to be your sin who knew no sin. He lived a righteous life so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the family of God. And he's calling you to walk in that family, walk closely in that family. Be a son, be a daughter, and trust in your father. Don't go running back to your old ways. Hold on, go and sin no more. means live a new life and walk closely with Jesus because he paid the penalty, he paid the price to be able to be gracious and kind and loving to you because that's who our God is. So how do we respond? After we know Jesus has handled the accusers, he meets us where we are, and then he calls us to better, what do we do with that now? Well, three simple steps. The first one, we accept the gift that Jesus offers us. Really simple, but really hard. We accept the gift that Jesus offers us. Whether it's for the first time and you want to trust Jesus for the first time and submit to him as Lord over your life and trust in him as Savior, or you've been walking with Jesus for a while, and you have yet to kind of open your fist on those last couple things that you've been hiding because you feel they're too dirty, they're too gross, they're too messy for anyone else to know. Accept that what he did on the cross is enough to forgive even the strongest debts. But if you're like me, you want to pay for it. You want to try and make it up on your own. You want to try and close that gap between what God calls you to and where you think you are. But it's kind of this comical thing when we actually think about it. Like, my sin is that I directly defied a God who sent his son to die for me. And I want to make it up to him by, like, doing the dishes for my wife. You know? Like, I want to not get mad at the guy who cuts me off on the freeway and think that that somehow closes the gap between where God's standard of holiness and righteousness is and where I am direct in rebellion to him. And we just can't pay it. You can't mask it. You can't hide it. You can't outwork it. But the beautiful thing is you have a Savior who's saying you don't have to. You have a God who's saying, I have already paid that for you. Would you just trust in me? Would you accept that gift? Would you stop trying to hide? Would you stop trying to explain it away? That is your sin. But I love you enough that I paid for it. And I want you to live a life with me. So we accept the gift that Jesus offers us. The second is that we confess our sins knowing that they are already forgiven. And you can't do this one without the first. You cannot confess freely without trusting that what Jesus did for you was enough. You can't do it. So what this means is recognizing that you were forgiven, recognizing that that debt has already been paid 
so that when you make a mistake, you can run to people in your life and say like, hey, I made this mistake. Would you help me not? Would you help me follow Jesus' command to go and sin no more? And would I cling to that? Would I, would you help me walk in that way? Because I think a really mistaken way that we think about our sin, that we think about our mistakes that keeps us from confessing is we think that when we make a mistake, that reflects on who we are. Like I am basically the sum of my worst mistakes. I am the sum of walking out of a lifelong pornography addiction. I am the sum of pride and envy and anger. But instead, I have a God who says, no, no, no. You are mine. You are a righteous, beloved son of the king. And that's what he says to you. If you are in Christ, that is our hope, that is our peace, is knowing who he is so that when we screw up, when we make a mistake, we can confess and say, hey, I don't want this in my life. I made a mistake. I went back. Would you help me not? Would you help me walk out of this pattern? And would you help me walk into a relationship with Jesus? And a really great passage that if you're ever struggling with this, because if you're like me, I tend to think that Jesus responds to me like the Pharisees responded to this woman. I think Jesus responds to me with folded arms, basically just saying like, I can't believe you did it again, Robert. I can't believe you screwed up again. How could you? I loved you so much and yet you turned away. And when I go, when I deal with that, when I go back into those thought patterns, man, this is where I turn in scripture. Um, So write this down if this is a struggle for you. It's 1 John 1, 5 through 10. Um, and it'll be up on the screen. You don't have to flip to it. But it says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So real, real quick, three things I want you to take from this chunk of scripture. The first is in verse six, and it's that we can't have fellowship with God when we're making a regular practice of sin. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Those two can't coexist continually seeking out your old way of life and being in close fellowship with Jesus, it can exist. You can't feel that peace. You can't feel that joy because you feel like you're running away. You're trying to go back to your old life that he already bought and paid for and you're not trusting in him. So those two things can't coexist. The second is in verses seven and nine. If we confess, he forgives real simply, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. And then in verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no sin he won't forgive. If you are confessing, if you are walking, if you are wanting to grow in your relationship with Jesus, he will not forsake you. You have scripture to prove it. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins. He's right to do so because he paid that penalty. That is the promise that we have for him. 
as the promise that whatever your fear was, whatever that darkest part of your past was, it can't undo that. You can't have a moment that is stronger than what Jesus already did. And so would we trust in his work to be able to confess, to be able to say, God, I trust you. Here's my brokenness. Here's what it is, because I know you bought and paid for it, and I know you forgive me. That's the second thing. And the last is that we all sin. Verse eight simply says, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Or if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Real easy, we're all in the same boat. There is no one in this room who doesn't understand sin and dealing with that day in and day out. So you're not alone. If you walked into this room today thinking, man, I'm the only one who's going through this or no one understands the brokenness that's in my life, that's a lie. That's meant to keep you isolated. Everyone understands the struggle of sin. We all understand what it looks like to deal with that and want it gone. Man, I said one of the things that I struggled with was pornography, and for the longest time, I kept it quiet until I had guys in my life who really walked with me and really called it out. And I remember specifically one time I confessed and confessed. And I, before, I had always just stopped confessing up to a point because it felt uncomfortable. Um, but I clung to this, and I said, like, okay, I'm going to keep confessing. And eventually, a brother was like, this keeps happening. What's going on? And he finally challenged me to put some systems in my life where it changed. And I've seen growth. And it's been a liberating, incredibly freeing thing. And I've seen real life change and freedom and victory happen. But that only came because I continued confessing and continued trusting in Jesus and not myself. I'm trying to hide it. And by God's grace, I've seen growth. And it's something to celebrate. And that only happened because there were people in my life who were pushing me towards that, which leads me to my third point. Choose a community that will model Christ and call you to better. That's our last application point. Accept the gift that Jesus offers, confess our sins knowing that we're forgiven, and then choose a community that will model Christ and call you to better. Jesus says, go and sin no more. He says, go, come and follow me. I have such a better way of life. What you've been doing is broken and it's leading you to brokenness. So don't do it anymore. But we need help. We're, we're fickle. We change our minds. We fall short. We stop pursuing Jesus, but we need people in our life who will help us stay on that path, who will help us keep running, who will ask us the tough questions. A real great example is family nights. If you're involved with a family night here at Christ Chapel College, man, you know your leaders love Jesus, and you know they ask about your life. They want to know what's going on. And you got people who are asking you, how are you doing? How's your time? Because you need people in your life who are willing to ask you the hard questions. Because that's what healthy biblical community is. Again, just to reiterate from earlier on, you need people in your life to call you out. You should have people in your life who call you out. There is no form of Christianity where we don't challenge each other to grow out of sin. It is the most loving thing we can do. Because Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a better way. I've bought and paid for it. Walk out of that brokenness that's robbing you, that's making you feel incomplete, that's making you feel hypocritical. Walk out of those things and into life, joy, peace, hope, satisfaction. That's the exchange. 
but we get mixed up in the circumstances and we forget. And somehow calling other people out turns judgmental instead of saying, don't you want this better way of life? So find a community that would do that, that would model that, that would follow Jesus' example when he met with the woman and challenge you in your life to do that. And then would you go and be that same person? We aren't saved just to do this on our own. So once someone has walked with you and continues to walk with you, go find others to walk through. But remember the brokenness that you felt. And remember how hard that was so that when they confess to you, you receive it humbly. Never, never telling them that they shouldn't stop. You should always call people out, out of their sin because Jesus is better. But do so humbly. Would we follow that example of Jesus? Would we look at the scripture, see just the most raw exposed moment and see a God who had all the power say, I love you. I want you, you're mine. Because that is who our God is. Let me pray. Father, we love you and we are unworthy. You are so incredibly good to us the gift that you gave us of sending your son to die for our sins so that we would know life in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of us choosing our own way, running, trying to hide from you, trying to excuse our sin. God, you sent your son to say, I'm gonna pay for all that. I'm gonna take all that on me and I'm gonna give them life. I'm gonna make them mine. I'm gonna hold them I'm gonna encourage them. I'm gonna give them hope. God, that is who your son is. So as we are walking through whatever has gone on in this room, I don't know the hurt that's out here, but Lord, you do. I pray that everyone in this room would feel their father say, I love you. I don't condemn you. You are not the sum of your worst mistakes. If you are in Christ, you are a son or a daughter of the king. God, I pray that we would hear that truth and we would know that truth, that we would hold on to it in the midst of our hardest moments and it would lead us to want to run after you, not stay in our old way of life. God, would we run to you and would we, help, would we have others help us do that? God, so that we can know you, so that we can walk closer with you and we can help others do the same. Father, we love you. May we never get tired looking at what your son did on that cross and applying it to our lives. Would it be our life's joy to remember it? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.